Welcome to the We Are VIP podcast. Each week, your host, Casey Haston, Director of Recruiting at VIP, will bring you valuable insights from thought leaders, introduce you to incredible companies, and bring you tips for landing your dream job from our team of executive recruiters at VIP. And now, Casey Haston. Welcome to the We Are VIP podcast, a podcast devoted to adding value to your career or candidate search, brought to you by VIP. I'm your host, Casey Haston. I'm an executive recruiter, director of recruiting with VIP, and your all-around hiring guru. That is what I love to do. I've truly found my passion in helping people find jobs and changing people's lives one job at a time. But enough about me. So today on the show, I'd like to welcome Lisa Gable, best-selling author of Turnaround, How to Change Course When Things Are Going South former U.S. ambassador, CEO, and keynote speaker. Lisa Gable has served four U.S. presidents and two governors, counseled Fortune 500 CEOs, and represented global public-private partnerships and nonprofits with an end goal of moving organizations to higher levels of performance. She is a Wall Street Journal and USA Today best-selling author and recognized as an innovative global businesswoman who leads with discipline and diplomacy. Her mission is to support the next generation of leaders and organizations that are solving the world's biggest problems. I almost feel like we can go home now. (laughs) Wow, you have done so much, Lisa. I have, I got started at a very young age, but uh, it's been a wonderful life and lots of opportunities. You know, and I always like to start the show off talking or asking you a question. How did we get connected? Well, we got connected through a podcaster who is a friend of both of ours, Rosie Zelinkas, and she is really doing a great job elevating the voices of women. In fact, she wrote a book on that topic that has gotten some wonderful recent reviews. Uh, She connected the two of us and then we set up a conversation and it's been a great partnership since. Yeah, and so, and I think that was really cool. And this is why I want to tell people to pay attention when they post stuff on LinkedIn or when somebody tags them on LinkedIn because I had done a podcast with her and you had actually commented on it. And I was looking at the people who were commenting on it. And when I saw it, I saw you and I went and did a little research and I was like, holy moly, I need to know this lady. <laughs> Well, I'm glad we got connected. It really is. uh, It's really amazing the people that you meet over LinkedIn. And I always tell people, take advantage of the of the system. Actually talk to the people that sound interesting. That's why their resumes are up there. You get to validate that they're normal, nice people. And I've made amazing connections around the world. Absolutely. Same. Same. In fact, just to uh, share a little story about that just recently, because believe it or not, my book just launched. Last Friday, thank you, I'm super excited. I'm hoping I'll be a bestseller like you someday. But it was interesting through the connections that I had made, just like you just said, by just being interested and curious about those people that were commenting or that I saw on LinkedIn, I had made a connection with a gentleman that is a CEO coach in the UK. And you know, we kept in touch over the years, but interestingly, when I posted on LinkedIn that I was you know, publishing my book, he reshared that. That means I could go international, you know? 
absolutely when those books start ticking up in all the european markets you'll know where you'll be able to trace it back to and that's why it's so important to when someone reaches out to you to take advantage of that opportunity absolutely so you have had an incredible career you are extremely accomplished you're like you know these you're the type of person movies are made out of right um but tell us a little bit about your career kind of help our audience i know you but kind of help our audience get to know you a little bit and how you got to where you are today well i started my career in the reagan administration when i was 19 years old and uh, ended up working later at the white house in the pentagon and spent the majority of my career doing turnarounds in business government philanthropy Spent a number of years in Asia, both in Taiwan and Japan, as well as in California and Silicon Valley. And I've had the opportunity to work for you know, presidents, uh, governors, philanthropists, CEOs who are facing an intractable problem or a seemingly intractable problem. I'm always their Hail Mary pass. And I've come in in order to try to figure out whether or not we can make that thing that's so important to them that has a particular purpose related to it that will do good, stay alive and thrive. I mean, and okay, so you are also a Wall St Wall Street Journal bestselling author. Wow. I mean, how does that feel? Do you have like the sticker to put on your books? Do you do you that? Know, I I haven't done the sticker yet, but um, it, it felt really good. I have to tell you, though, and, and I'm sure you can appreciate this, it was October 5th of last year when the book uh, started rising on the bestseller list across the country. And when they called me and told me I made the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, I burst into tears. And I think part of it is that there's so much emotion wrapped up in this this time period where you're so inwardly focused, right? I wrote mm -hmm. my book for five months, every Saturday and Sunday. I was working during the week, so I'd get up at 7 a.m. on Saturday, work until four. My husband swears I didn't talk to him for the entire time period. And, uh, and you've put so much into it. And then all of a sudden it goes out there for its first book review and you just wonder, was it worth it? Was the sacrifice worth it? And are people going to like it? And is it going to be useful? So it's a very humbling process. And I'm just thrilled that the book has done so well. And I completely understand what you're saying. And I, and I think anybody who's published a book probably does understand that because you pour so much of yourself into that book. And it's almost like at the last minute, I don't know how it was for you, but for me, I was just kind of like, I don't want to publish it anymore. <laughs> I just want to keep it, you know, it's mine. <laughs> That's right. I'm not sharing it. Nobody can read it. I wouldn't let my husband read it until uh, maybe the maybe like two months before it actually hit the stands. Wow. I, I was he was the one I wouldn't let read it. And he's like, why? I go, because if you say anything at all, if you make one of those comments, I'm just going to be devastated. Oh. But he loved the book. So, so the thing was, after he read it, he's like, am I allowed to say anything? I was like, well, what are you going to say? He goes, well, I loved it. And then he went through and he, being the engineer that he is, he'd highlighted all the different parts that he really liked. And that, that meant a lot. That's amazing when you have that kind of support that close to home. You know, and I feel like I had some of that as well. But you mentioned in your book that um, that you described as being committed to the facilitation of success. So tell me a little bit about the your experiences that taught you the lessons that you pass along to others in your book. Well, as I tell people, I my book is 
an amplification of how mm -hmm. I took the manufacturing processes I learned at Intel and I integrated them with the art of diplomacy that I learned at the White House and the State Department. But the reality is I couldn't have done anything without the relationships that I've built. And so when I reflect back on the people that moved boulders out of my way, not recognizing that what they may not have been considered to be a big step, they might have seen it as been a, a small part of their helping me out, actually made a very instrumental difference in my life. And so I look back at the first 15 years of my life and I recognize that through small steps, through intentional actions, through doing something for another person, that you can help them bridge gaps and really help a future problem solver move forward. And that's what I like to do. I, I love what you just said about people were there that moved boulders out of the way. And so many times I think that as professionals, and you know, and I support a young executives initiative here, and I want to be that. I, I call it collapsing the timeline for them, right? And and but I think the way you said it is just as accurate that we're removing those boulders that they don't even know are there. Absolutely, and you don't realize that they were there until you're in a senior level position. I think that's one of the things that as I get older, and I've been working for almost forty years now, is in retrospect. I realized so much more of what people did for me, or I realized what was going on behind the scenes that I would not have, have noticed myself because I was in the moment, I was scared, you know, I wanted to do the best I could do, not realizing all of the movement in the background that was eventually going to open up that opportunity for me. And so, okay, and you talk about those people in the background that you may not have even known about. What do you think it was about you that caused them to take interest into moving those boulders for you? I never suffered from any lack of self-confidence. <laughs> and, and that is one thing when I mentor young people, I, I let them know that you have to put yourself out there. I took advantage of every opportunity that uh, was put in front of me, and some of them were unexpected. I, I speak a great deal about my relationship with the Barretts, uh, Barbara Barrett, who was an ambassador and later Secretary of the Air Force, Craig Barrett, who was CEO and Chairman of the Board of Intel. The way I met them is that I got asked to escort Barbara to a meeting in the West Wing of the White House, and we got stuck in this windowless room in the basement for two hours, two hours. Now I was going to grad school at night. I was tired. I didn't have a lot in common with her, but I took advantage of my time with her. And little did I know that that conversation would literally map out the next 15 years of my life because she and Craig opened up so many doors for me. I ended up working for him at Intel Corporation at the end of the Reagan administration. But you know, as I tell people, being stuck in a basement, take advantage of it. You never know what's going to happen. I, I love that. And that reminds me of one thing that my mentor told me because I was at the airport. My flight was delayed one time and I was like griping, you know, and she's like, oh girl, that's a gift. Nobody knows you're stuck. They think you're on a plane. Get done what you need to get done. And I was like, oh. So it's really a matter of just reframing the situation. So that basement trip, you reframe that into becoming something very positive. Absolutely. You know, and you, my dad always taught me, you show up when you say you're going to show up, no matter how inconvenient it is, you do what you say, what you're going to do, no matter how tired you are. And I think about so many times where I've RSVP'd for an event and it's raining outside and it's cold. And I can remember one time when I had just moved back to Virginia and it was just snowing and we didn't really know anybody at the event. And 
finally, my husband and I were like, well, we RSVP'd. We said we would come. We can't leave these people. And we met two of our closest friends and political allies when we walked in the door of that event. Uh, so again, you know, just trust karma, you know, trust the fact that if you do what you say that you were going to do, that something good will come out of it. So I love that you just said that because I have a rule and it's, it's, I, nothing's ever a hundred percent, but this one's pretty firm for me. So every morning when I get up, I write down my schedule and I write down my to-do list. Once I write down my schedule, I can't change it. And let me tell you why. And I think very carefully about what I put on my schedule and who I put on my schedule. But the most important thing that I think about when I'm doing my schedule is if I put work out on my schedule, because if I write it down, I got to do it. Yep. And so that sounds like what you're saying. Absolutely. And self-care is part of the process, right? Part of it is making sure that you have the energy, the motivation, um, that you're ready to move forward. And, and sometimes we forget that we actually have to take care of ourselves. And by doing yeah. so, we put ourselves in a better position with a less cluttered mind in order to be able to solve the problems we need to solve that day. Absolutely. And I think that would go a long way towards helping with my next question, because you actually wrote an article on bullies, especially bullies in the workplace. And I know we've all dealt with them before, but you mentioned that both women and men must do their best to counter the bullies and the negative narrative. And oh my gosh, I don't even want to go down the narrative path, but the negative narrative that they try to write, but we do, we, we create our own realities through those narratives, right? So how can someone resist workplace bullying and change the narrative to a positive one? Well, Unfortunately, the burden is on you. And that's one thing I always remind people. My dad used to say, you have no margin for error. And what he meant by that is that when you're facing a very difficult challenge, when someone's attacking you, you have to be so careful. You have to moderate what you say. You can't go start gossiping with everybody else. You can't complain about that person. You need to document the facts. You need to make sure you go through the reporting structure, but all along when you talk to people, speak with facts about the good things that you have done. You're changing the narrative by keeping on the straight and narrow, by taking the high road, by speaking about the results that you're bringing forward. And what that does is it gives a counterbalance. Maybe someone's actually accused you of not doing your work or because they don't want to give you credit for something, or they're trying to say that you, you know, that you haven't been able to come up with innovative ideas. And yet you're laying out in every single meeting and you're being very judicious about it. You're thinking about how do I want everybody to perceive me right here and now and identify those facts that you want to bring forward, that you want to highlight about the changes you've made, the success that you've had. And the reality is sometimes, as we all know, the situation will improve. Maybe uh, through the reporting process, changes will be made. Other times they won't. And when you leave, that narrative of success is what you take with you. Mm. And that's what we forget is that when you go to that job interview and people ask, well, why did you leave? It's just because you've managed to accomplish all these amazing things and you're ready for the next step forward in life. No one has to know about the negativity that maybe forced you out the door. Yeah, I think that's so true. And I'm glad you brought that up because that's one thing that we counsel our candidates on when they're going, especially if they've had a rough departure from their yeah. prior job. And a lot of times, and I'm sure you've seen this, I know you've done a lot of hiring, people show up with that and you mm -hmm. can see it all over their face. And it's not 
pretty. Not that the person's not pretty, it's just the the baggage they bring with them is not pretty. And so we counsel them, they're like, you know, if you show up with that hurt and that anger, and if you don't deal with that, it, it's gonna show, and you're probably not gonna get the job. It is, and the other thing to know is that really don't post all those Harvard Business Review articles that talk about how bad workplace involvement was. I had one employee left, and for like weeks, she just kept posting these articles, and we all knew they were directed at us. And she just wanted to go, stop, post the articles about your excitement over your new job and what you plan to do and all the great things that you've done. It, it's something where people don't recognize sometimes that their bitterness uh, actually becomes their reflection. Mm. And you don't want that. You want your reflection to be the results that you've had, the strength that you bring to solving any situation, and your character. I love that, and your character. I, I wanted to go back to one thing you said about you know making those little adjustments like when you're in the room so that people perceive you the way you want to be perceived. But I'd like to get your thoughts on this too because I'm a big believer in we can't control other people's perceptions about it. So once you show up authentically the way you want to be perceived, I feel like that's the end of your responsibility. And I would agree with you. I think it's along more of the fact that sometimes you get very quiet, right? When, you, when you're when you so nervous that you're gonna say something, particularly if it's with an individual that you know is gonna be abusive to you when you left the room, you just have to make sure that you say everything you were going to say. You continue to operate efficiently. You continue to operate with, um, with a, a strength of belief in what you're saying, even even if you know you're going to get in trouble for it when you walk out the door, all you can do is fulfill the mission that has been given to you. And the reality is, as we know, it catches up with people. Like I said, I've been working 40 years, 40 years. And because of the levels at which I've worked, let's just say people have had really ugly headlines in the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post. <laughs> and so sometimes it doesn't happen right away. But two years later, when there's this glaring article, you could go, okay, see, I was right. <laughs> I, I, I want to hear about some of those stories sometimes off camera because I bet you've got some doozies to share. So I do. So what's the difference between diplomacy and being non-confrontational and how can professionals learn to face issues head on while maintaining peace in the workplace? Because I mean, that's what we all want. And so often we just don't see it. We don't. One of the things that I learned how to do is look at the world from the perspective of the person with whom I was speaking. And what I try to do in a difficult conversation is I'll, in, in some cases, I will actually do research in advance and I will spend a great deal of time thinking, why do they believe this is the best mm. path forward? When I can walk in and say, here is what's going on, here are the facts. Be non-emotional, here are the facts of what's going on, statistic one, statistic two, data point three. Now, I know that you would like for us to do the following three things. And I understand your pain point. Am I correct that this is the, this is the issue that's causing you a great deal of pain and that might be one reason why you feel strongly that we need to follow this path. If I can present you with an alternative idea that takes into account the pain point that you've been suffering through, does that solve the problem? And so what I, I try to be so prepared for those conversations, 
And the reality is don't begin a conversation thinking that that person's bad. You don't know what they've gone through. You don't know about the pain points that they've run into because things were done by a manager, by an executive, um, in some cases by your own government that put you that person in a bad spot. So assume that they're a good person and assume that they've had their own challenges with the situation that you're in. But the reality is that you know that in order for you to build sustainable change, you are gonna need to take a direction that may not be one that they're comfortable with. So what you have to do is demonstrate to them how that pain point's gonna go away. You know, I love that. And I learned a very valuable lesson. And you would think, I, you know, I've been working a long time too, that I would have already learned this lesson, but I mean, it just kind of got like thrown in my face the other day because I said something to one of my coworkers and the response I got was, and, and I don't want to give the situation because I don't want to be too obvious about what it was, but I was just like, where did that come from? And then she stepped back and she explained to me the situation that had happened 20 years ago. And she's like, that's why I responded to your statement the way I did. And I'm like, whoa. That's a trigger. And so you don't know what's, and then there was an, another instance not too long after that that was another trigger. And so you don't know, the best intentions can sometimes not be received well, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Absolutely, and you really don't know what's, what's happened. I ran into one situation where I was a political appointee in a, in a government and was working with career staff and they were really pushing back on everything that I, I wanted to do. And I thought it was related to me. I thought they were resisting me. I thought they were resisting the function that I had to fulfill. The reality was that people who had gone before me had done things that had placed them in um, situations that put them at risk. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, we have something called the Inspector General and different US government agencies that does investigations when something's gone awry. And there's nothing worse than someone who's done a great job, been a great career officer uh, you know, in the Foreign Service or in the Defense Department, when they get pulled into the Inspector General's office. You don't want that. And so once you understood that that was what they'd experienced before, the reassurance I gave them was how I was going to keep everybody out of trouble. <laughs> I was like, no, 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 we're not doing this. I, I was a Girl Scout. Like, I'm, I, I'm not. I, I don't like to get in trouble either. So once I knew that the fear wasn't the function, it was the way in which people had executed it in the past. I had to reassure them that I wasn't going to do that. That's incredible. And you, you just scared me when you said Inspector General. I thought I was in trouble. You know, I was like, <laughs> I'll go to the corner. Leave me alone. <laughs> It's a horrible feeling. I can't even imagine working under that kind of pressure that. Yeah, and people should never be placed under that pressure. I mean, one of the things I talk about in my book and you, when you read it is I talk about hubris. And, and one reason for a situation to require a turnaround is that someone at a high level puts their interest above the interest of the organization. Mm. And to me, that is something that I can't tolerate because you are paid money to do a job. The institution is not giving you a paycheck so you can go and build your resume. And, and so we have a tendency as humans to flip that sometimes and we kind of forget that we, we are servants of an institution for a moment in time. It existed before us, it's going to exist after us, and we should be judged on how well we execute. That 
just hit home. I always say during these podcasts that there's always a message that I feel like is just for me. That was one. <laughs> I think I needed to hear that. So, okay. So what kind of advantages do you see from organizations implementing training programs that are meant to identify those pro problematic situations? I think they're good. I mean, there's some that are very good. There's some that are not so good. What what we need people to understand is that there are certain characteristics that you need to look out for that would demonstrate to you that something's not right. And what you have to be also learn, and this comes with maturity and guidance and mentoring, and that's one reason why mentors are really good at these point in times, is there are two ways a situation can go. First, again, I always start with the assumption that the person I'm dealing with is a good person, but good people have bad days, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they may have gotten into a car wreck before they walked in the door. They, you know, their, their dog may have eaten their homework. Who knows what happened? Um, their mother may have gotten sick. And so you don't know that they were running late because they were on the phone. I'm just going to assume something bad happened. So if they act uncharacteristically in a negative way that HR would probably not approve of, I do try to give them the benefit of the doubt within the context of everything that I've experienced with that person. So learning habits, learning habitual actions, learning um, issues around governance and fiduciary responsibility, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, and what you shouldn't tolerate, and what you should just, you know, sometimes you do need to let stuff roll off your back. I think those types of trainings are excellent, and I've seen some really good ones uh, play out uh, that, you know, I've really learned a lot from. I, you know, and I think it'd be interesting to see, you know, if you have like a list of those trainings that you said that you've learned a lot from, and are there any in particular that you would recommend? I was thinking of unconscious bias. When we were uh, developing the diversity and uh, training for the organization that I ran last, we looked at a lot of different programs. We really did. And my HR lead ended up choosing unconscious bias. And I was very impressed with the way that that operated because again it taught everybody not to judge people in the room by the way they looked and in in it it really it was funny because they would give you a scenario and uh and they would walk you through those situations so they would walk you through that somebody placed you at the back of a restaurant not because they were degrading you but because there was a water leak in the front of the restaurant that you didn't see or a drip from the ceiling and how you might make a snap reaction and how you should work your way through to try to determine why, why you got put in the bad seat. Um, or they would bring up scenarios and they would show you pictures of people and say, here's a group of people, you know, gut judgment. What do you think they do for a living? What do you think their, their college education is, their career? What's the story on them? And inevitably nobody in the room guessed correctly. So it, it is demonstrative that we need to always appreciate and recognize that our perceptions are inevitably wrong. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it walks you through a process to ascertain what your relationship with that person can be and who that person really is. I think that is such good advice. And as always, I have a story about that. <laughs> so we were uh, flying back from, um, I don't remember where, it doesn't matter but there was this young man in front of us and he had these dreadlocks and all this stuff going on. And the person I was with said something about how, 
you know, he's probably just a dope smoking person and all this kind of stuff. Well, as the conversation went on, because we could hear him talking to the person in front of it turns out he's a grad student and he was in something like, I don't know, like physics or something. It was something really brainy. And I was just like, oh, yeah. So I, I get exactly what you're saying. I mean, you can't, I, so cliche, but judge a book by its cover. It is. And I, and it's really, I think it's one of the hardest things you try to teach your children this. You try to always teach yourself this. Having lived all over the world, I'm so used to such a diversity of people. I mean, I worked at a gaming company on a project. Someone um, had an emergency uh, pregnancy leap of absence and they called me at the last minute and go, we need to launch this product in a month. I'm like, okay. So they dropped me into a game company. Well, you may or may not go. Game companies are filled with guys who don't always bathe and they don't always go to sleep at night. And I would walk in, you know, that I would work regular hours and there would be like blankets draped over the cubicles and Mountain Dew cans rolling out like some foot with a sock and a hole in it sticking out of the floor. And as you said, the guy might have a PhD in God knows what, and as a you know quantum cybersecurity expert that has just built the system to make sure bad things don't happen with the game. So you know, Silicon Valley taught me never, never judge a book by its cover. That is so beautiful. So you were recognized as the business by the business Berg, which I've never in 2020 as one of the most innovative business women. What does it feel like to be a role model for other women? Well, it's, uh, you know, I, I had so many amazing role models throughout the th my life and there's so many people that I looked up to. So if there is a way in which I am reflecting the good that they taught me and the lessons that uh, they conveyed to me and that I learned over multiple years, then I'm happy I lived up to their expectations. A again, I always come back to the fact that somebody invested in me and I tried to learn from the best of the best and I tried to adopt the habits that were characteristic of role models that I had. And so I hope that's what's seen reflected and that is what allows me to show other women what I learned from the women who really set the stage for people in my age category. I love that you're just giving it back. And I mean, it's just such a full circle, right? Because somebody poured into you and now you're pouring into others. And I think that's what makes a successful work life, you know, for all of us is when we're just pouring into each other to help everybody be successful and not just all say, it's mine, it's mine, you know? Oh, it's definitely not. I mean, I would not have gotten to the places I hadn't without people. And, and when I think about, um, the women who went before us. And I had dinner with a friend of mine a couple of months ago, who's 85 years old. And she was on two corporate boards in the sixties, in the sixties. Wow. And, you sit there and I go, and I never knew that about her. She'd never told me in all the, we'd worked at the white house together. Uh, we'd been friends for a long time, but I never knew. And, and, and then she began to tell me stories. She didn't, she was never someone who would bring forward the challenges that she had. She never would tell us, but then she began to tell me the stories at that point in time, some 40 years later, you know, what her life had been like and the other women that were with her. And, and we do owe a great deal to those women. I mean, we really, really do. They, they, they heart, you know, they fought hard fights and they moved boulders out of our way and they changed the world. That is amazing. Well, you're doing your part to change the world too. So thank you for that. Well, it's a pleasure.
And it's always a pleasure to work with people like you. Oh, well, thank you. Well, now I want to learn a little bit more about you because I want to ask you our VIP questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. I love hearing the answers on these. So if you were chosen to be one of the first colonists on Mars, what three things or people would you take with you? Well, I'm really going to hope that Elon Musk is already up there. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully I'm on ship number two. Ship number two would be highly preferable. Um, and, you know, I, I have always worked with engineers. I value engineers. I think that they are some of the most brilliant people that I know. So if I can find engineers that understand communications, how to keep the power on, how to keep the oxygen running and... Uh, and, you know, and water, I guess, are the, some of the important things, then those are the guys I'm sticking with. If, if they're a PhD MD, more the better. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, of course, we keep that question kind of vague because we like to see where your mind takes you with that. And I should have known yours would have gone to the engineers. So um, what is one thing you do each morning to set your day up for success? Well, I always have a cup of coffee, uh, but one of the things I do is I, at the top of my calendar, I keep a series of things that I need to get done immediately. I am one of those people that, you know, if I have a cluttered desk or if I have a cluttered mind, I cannot focus. And so I ram through and get those things done. And they're normally basic things, like I've promised to send somebody a document, I have promised to send someone a referral for a job or send their resume forward. They're little things. They're not big things. But what it does is it allows me to line item them, put a line through them, clear the clutter from my brain, and then I focus on everything that starts really getting going at 9 o'clock. I think that's very important, too. I, I do not quite the same order, but I do have my list that I have to have in the morning before I get started, and I need to see it. But I do my whole day. Yeah, no, for me, it's it's the it's the night before I go through and, and, and I literally put them on as a, an outlook. You can do it so it's a hold all day hold. And that way I can just click it off so I can physically see it disappear and I can feel like, yep, I did what I said I was going to do. Oh, that's a good idea. I, I may have to start trying that. Okay, so my final question for you. If your life's work was being summarized in a news article, what would the headline be? That she helped other people move forward. I mean, I, you know, I know I've talked about that a lot, but I really do hope that people say, at the end of the day, think about how do you want to be remembered? And I talk about it in a speech. And the reality is um, the people whose, you know, celebration of life affects me the most greatly is when it's somebody that may have built a large institution, but nobody talks about the institution they built. They talk about the people they helped. Mm -hmm. And that's really what people remember. And it's truly how I want to be remembered. I love that. How do people find you if they want to get in touch with you? Um, I am very active on LinkedIn. So just find me as on Lisa Gable at LinkedIn. On Instagram, it's uh, Lisa Gable Official. Uh, the Lisa Gable on Facebook. And on Twitter, it's just Lisa Gable. And I do answer questions. So if, especially if you go into Messenger or a LinkedIn messages, feel free to send me a question and I am happy to answer it. I love that. Well, this has been an amazing conversation, just like I knew it would. And I just have one last thing to say to you, Lisa. Okay. You are a VIP. Well, thank you very much. It's really been lovely being with you today. And that's a wrap for today. Join us next week here on the We Are VIP podcast. 
We'd love to know how we can help you be a VIP. To find out more, log on to wearevip.com.